James opened this epistle, consider it all joy, my brethren, not if, but when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. So James doesn't write to tell us how to get out of trials. James writes to help us to know how to endure trials, and critical to that is prayer. Hello, and welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. Today, Pastor Carl will begin his sermon called, Does Prayer and Oil Heal? Where he will show us the display of faith as it relates to prayer in James chapter 5, verses 13 through 16. Let's join Pastor Carl as he begins his lesson in James chapter 5, verse 13. I want to invite you to take your Bibles this morning and turn to James chapter 5. James is one of the general epistles in the New Testament. Before I read our passage of Scripture, I'd like to ask and answer a very important question. Does prayer and oil produce healing? Does prayer and oil produce healing? Many a believer, desperate to get well, have called for the elders of the church or they've gone to some faith healer, and they were anointed with oil, they were prayed over, and then they left unhealed. And they ask themselves, did I not have enough faith? And sometimes a Christian who is afflicted with some serious physical ailment will ask a brother or sister in Christ, and they'll say, do you think God would heal me if I went to the elders of the church and they prayed over me and anointed me with oil, sometimes they'll say, well, yes, if you have enough faith. And so knowing that faith comes from hearing and hearing by the Word of God, they they load up on Scripture. They go with all the unction and power, holding on to the promises as they understand them, but they're not healed. And they say, what happened? What went wrong? Sadly, many of God's people are disillusioned when this happens to them because God's Word has been misrepresented. On television, we have these so-called ministers with the gift of healing, as they claim, and they will have these meetings that are sprinkled with testimonies of people who have been healed. Of course, Benny Hinn is one of the most famous, and of course, his nephew who worked for him for years, bilking people across the nation, later found Christ as his Savior and revealed the whole scam that he and so many faith healers have propagated upon God's people. Some even sell anointed prayer cloths, like the apostles, where even if a a cloth from their body was touched, supernatural healing would take place. And many of God's people honestly ask today, is this for real? Should I go to the elders or should I go to my doctor? What should I do? And of course, Roman Catholics also use the verses that we're going to examine today. They say that this is representative of their sacrament known as extreme unction that in the final moments of life, a priest can come and anoint you and pray over you, that you might not be responsible for any mortal sin, either spend less time or bypass purgatory altogether. 
These verses are also used by local churches who think that this is the biblical justification for having healing meetings. And so some once a week, some once a month, will host a healing meeting where people can come to the altar and they can be anointed with oil and prayed over. Now remember, any text without a context is a pretext. And when you ignore the context, you can easily misinterpret the passage of Scripture. And so before I read our passage, let me set the broader context and then the immediate context. If you're new here, we've been working our way chapter by chapter and verse by verse through the epistle of James. By now, many of you have this outline memorized. As you can see on the chart, there are three principal divisions to the book of James. Chapter 1 deals with the development of faith. Chapters 2 through 4 with the distortion of faith. And chapter 5, where we are this morning with the display of faith. In chapter 5, to bring it down to the immediate context, first we covered the first six verses where the Apostle James deals with the display of faith as it relates to your possessions, to the things that you own. Then in verses 7 through 13, he deals with the display of your faith as it relates to patience. And then in this final section, he will deal with the display of faith as it relates to prayer. And by the way, these three sections are by no means unrelated to one another. Having described our possessions in verses 1 through 6 as it relates to the poor as they were being persecuted by the wicked rich, and then in 7 through 12, having admonished us when going through a trial to patiently endure using the example of Job, it becomes clear in these final verses as well that without prayer, it's impossible for us to go to, through suffering, heartache, and affliction well. Prayer is critical. And of course, when we read James the Apostle, we're not talking about a man who just read about prayer in a book, but a man who did it, a man who lived it. Eusebius, who lived in 263 A.D., wrote these words as one of the late church fathers. It says that James has, had knees as hard as a camel's. In other words, he had spent so much time on his knees, they were calloused. So when we read about what James says about prayer, this is not theory, this is his practice. Now, he begins this paragraph of Scripture with a characteristic style that we've seen all the way through this epistle. He asks a rhetorical question, and then he gives some very practical advice on those who are suffering, those who are cheerful, and those who are sick. So let's read our passage. I hope you have found it by now. James chapter 5, beginning in verse 13. Is anyone among you suffering? Then he must pray. Is anyone cheerful? He is to sing praises. Is anyone among you sick? Then he must call for the elders of the church, and they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven him. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. 
Now, contrary to the popular message of the faith healer and the tele-evangelists of our day, the Christian life is filled with trials. James opened this epistle, consider it all joy, my brethren, not if, but when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. So James doesn't write to tell us how to get out of trials. James writes to help us to know how to endure trials, and critical to that is prayer. You might think of endurance as the automobile and prayer as the gas that you put in it to make it run. So having just described the wicked rich who ripped off many of these believers, and then he begins verse 7 with the words, be patient therefore. And then he commands them again, notice in verse 8, you too be patient, strengthen your hearts for the coming of the Lord is near. And then he gives still another command in verse 9, notice, do not complain. That is, don't become a bunch of belly-aching, whining believers. Be like Job. Be patient. Don't complain. Wait upon the Lord for His justice to ultimately express itself. And then as we come to this paragraph this morning, there are three more commands, and I've built the outline around those three imperatives. If you are new, there's a note-taking outline in your bulletin. If you are online, there's a place where you can print it out if that will be of help to you. First, I want us to underscore this truth that we are to pray when we are overwhelmed. We are to pray when we are overwhelmed. Look at verse 13. Again, it begins, Is anyone among you suffering? Then he must pray. Now, that's a command. That's an imperative. He's commanding us to pray. Why does he command us? Because God knows us better than we know ourselves. And point A there, God knows that when overwhelmed, our natural tendency very often is not to pray. It's not to pray. You say, well, when you are in a trial, you snuggle up to God. Not necessarily. Very often, Christians don't pray. Think your way through this this morning. One translation, the New Living renders this, are any of you suffering hardship? You should pray. And so the word for suffering here is someone who's in a deep form of distress or hardship. The suffering that he is describing can be used in the New Testament to describe physical suffering, mental suffering, financial suffering, spiritual suffering, on a number of different levels. And James knows that our natural tendency when we are suffering is in our fallen nature to look within, to uh, relish in a form of self-pity. Or as verse 9 indicates, our tendency can be to complain to others or to criticize others, to blame other people for the problem that we're going through. The truth is, is that Christians, when they are in a hardship, they often talk to other people. They may come to their pastor. They may just have a conversation with themselves in their own mind. But they don't talk to God. Now, we love everything about prayer except the discipline. We love to hear testimonies about prayer and how God answered this prayer or that prayer. But one author who did an extensive survey in evangelical churches in America found that the average born-again Christian prays three to four minutes a day 
in comparison to the average evangelical born-again Christian who spends three to five hours a day watching television or surfing the internet. So God knows when we are overwhelmed, our natural tendency very often is not to pray. Secondly, when overwhelmed, God's solution is to pray. God's solution is to pray. Again, is any among you suffering, then he must pray. God wants to be our refuge and our strength. Now remember the opening verse of this letter, he is writing to the diaspora. They are spread like seed. These are people who came, Jewish people, who came under the oppression of Rome and they were scattered across the empire. So when James addresses these group, this is not, you know, just some trite advice of something that could happen. These are people who are living in the midst of hardship and persecution. And I am convinced that many of us never end up maturing in our relationship with Christ because we never, as a way of life, go to the Lord in prayer. We talk to our friends, we talk to our husbands, we talk to our wives, we talk to our pastor, but we never get alone with God and pour out our hearts to Him. Now remember, these are not sideliners. Some of you are sideliners this morning. You didn't come to church because you're enjoying sitting in that lounge or on the couch listening to Pastor Brogy. When you have the physical ability to be here, and you should be here, because COVID for the most part is over, and you do not want to forsake your assembling. Now, some of you can't be here because you have sick children, you're caring for them. I respect all of that. But these people are not sideliners. They're actively involved in the fellowship. But the question that they needed to ask, and we need to ask with them and answer, is am I personally praying about the heartaches and the problems and the challenges that I am going through? And God knows many times that when we hit one of these crises in our life that it can seemingly paralyze us. And God doesn't want that to happen. That's why in chapter 1 and verse 5, he says in the context of a trial, if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God. Now, we use that verse all the time. I've got a big decision in life. I've got to know whether to go to this school or that school to take this job or that job to move to this city or that city. And that's a legitimate application. But contextually, he's saying when you are in the midst of a trial, Seek the living God and ask Him for wisdom as to how you should respond. And so prayer should be our first response. About 15 years ago, I taught the book of Nehemiah. I should probably teach it again. Actually, it was longer than 15 years ago. But nonetheless, we went through every single verse. And one of the things that we learned about Nehemiah was that he was a man of prayer. His first instinct whenever he had a problem, was to cast and send up these programs to God. Now, he was living in plush circumstances, but he learned that the people of Israel were in deep distress. The wall was down, their protective um, wall to allow them to live in safety and to worship in safety had been removed. And so the first thing he does is he goes to the living God in prayer. And that's what God wants us to do. Today, you got to 
group of Christians hanging around. Someone says, we, we need to pray. What happened? Who died? You know, was there, was there an accident? You know, and it's, it's like it's not their natural response. And it needs to be. Prayer should be our first instinct. That's what God wants to develop in us. So God wants us to know that we are to pray when we are overwhelmed. But James also gives us a prescription for those who are cheerful. So Roman numeral two there on your outline is we are to sing when we are overjoyed. We are to sing when we are overjoyed. Now the Apostle James moves to the opposite extreme from those who are suffering to those who are cheerful. Look again in verse 13. Is anyone cheerful? He is to sing praises. Not everyone goes through trouble and difficulty at the same time. And so you should not feel guilty because you're not experiencing the hardship that someone else is knowing. Solomon will write in the book of Ecclesiastes, there's a time to weep and there's a time to laugh. There is a time to mourn, and there is a time to dance. And so James is saying, if you're joyful, let it out. And that needs to be said. He's not saying the only time you sing is when you're cheerful. But sometimes the tendency is, well, I don't really want to sing because, you know, all these other people have all these other problems. Not to mention the word cheerful here that, by the way, is found only one other place in the New Testament. It's in Acts 27. The Apostle Paul is on a ship to Rome. They get into trouble. They jettison the cargo. People are fearing for their life. And he says, I exhort you to be of good cheer. Same word that's used. And so, of course, the mature Christian, the growing Christian, will learn to sing to the Lord, not just in the midst of great cheerfulness, but also in the midst of trials. And let me just say parenthetically here, one of the reasons I think he commands us when we are cheerful to sing is because sometimes we can celebrate the world's way. And so, hey, look at what's happened. I'm so excited. And then we go out and celebrate and we listen to the world's music or we respond the world's way instead of responding God's way. And there's something very, very powerful about music. Satan can use it for evil. God can use it for good. When, uh, when King Saul was under the oppression of demons, what did he do? He called King David, and godly music was played, and those demons could not stand it. Paul and Silas were in a situation where they were cheerful in the midst of a very difficult trial. Do you remember? They were in uh, Acts 16. It records the time they were in Philippi. They preached the gospel. They end up in jail. They are bleeding from the uh, whipping they had had. And we read in Acts 16:25. but about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns of praise to God. So praying and singing are elements of what God has called us to do in our worship. Singing is an expression of our inner life. And if all you do is sing the world's music, that's not good. Now let me, while we're here, talk about music for just a moment. 
because it's a very controversial subject in our day. It is divided churches and denominations. But let me underscore three critical biblical truths. Number one, our singing should be intelligent. Our singing should be intelligent. According to 1 Corinthians 14 and verse 15, we're not simply to mouth words that don't mean anything to us. I believe one of the reasons for the total rejection of some of the traditional hymns is because people are illiterate theologically. We live in a day where expositional preaching is rare. Understand some of the old great hymns, many of them were written by pastors. Sometimes they put the music to the hymn. Very often they wrote the hymn, and someone else who is gifted musically put it to music, but they represented words that were reflections of deep biblical thinking, and that's why in so many churches we've gone to these little ditties that don't have much depth to them, and we've thrown it out. Some people say, well, we only want to sing the old hymns. I go to one church on occasion, and it seems like that's all they ever sing. It has to be 17th century. Well, the Scripture also says, sing to the Lord a new song. And so new hymns, which Matt introduces us all the time to, are important because, one, God commands it, but, two, it causes you to reflect and to think as you worship God. So first, let me say our worship, our singing needs to be intelligent. The Bible also teaches our singing needs to be from the heart. It needs to be from the heart. In Ephesians 5.19, Paul tells us it ought to come from the heart. He says, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord. Listen to what Jesus told the Pharisees in Matthew 15.8. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. So your lips can be moving without connecting the words of expression to the heart. And so what the Pharisees do or did, some some saved saints do today. They sing, but it's not connected to the heart. Now, some of that is just due to the fact that they're up too late the night before. Now, the Jews have it right. They understand a biblical day from going from sundown to sundown. So their Sabbath begins Friday night, and it ends Saturday evening. And I think there's something to be said for preparing your heart on Saturday evening for the Lord's Day, the day that God has called His people to worship on. We don't worship on the seventh day. We worship on the first day, the New Testament under the New Covenant dictates. Now, there's coming a time when we'll go back to the seventh day during the millennial reign of the Messiah, but right now God has us on the first day of the week as the Lord of the Sabbath has dictated. But we should be prepared to come. If we come here every Sunday exhausted because, you know, it's our day off and we're watching a movie or something until 1 a.m., that's not good. This is a command to sing. It's commanded. I knew a person who lost their voice box, and when they come into the service, they just mouth it. Hey, I appreciate that. You say, my voice is awful. God doesn't say it has to be good. He says, make a joyful noise 
unto the Lord. That's a command. Even if you have to lip it, do it for the Lord. Connect it with the heart. Now, I understand some people, you know, raise their hands or close their eyes or rock, and there's nothing wrong with those things, though the raising of hands typically is not associated with singing in Scripture. It's associated with praying, raising holy hands to the Lord. Though certainly there are some hymns that are very vertical, and someone's hands may go up. But if that's you, don't put it in the face of the guy next to you. And certainly don't do it to draw attention to yourself. But it doesn't mean if your hands are raised, your eyes are closed, you're more spiritual. I've seen it all as a pastor. Of these who do that only to find out they're living adulterous, sinful lives. Now, only God can read the heart, but you know your own heart, and your heart and your words need to be connected. So when we are cheerful, we are to sing, and our singing should be intelligent. Our singing should be from the heart. Third, our singing should be based on the Word of God. It should be based on the Word of God. It needs to be based on Scripture. Paul told the church at Colossus, that with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, they are to make melody. Paul said the same thing in Ephesians 5, 19. Listen to this verse. Speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord. You see those two words I have underlined on the slide, making melody? That's the verbal form of the Greek word for psalm. And so, literally, it reads, singing and psalming in your heart. In other words, when you are singing, you are singing truth, as the Jews had the Psalms as their hymn book. They still use it as their hymn book. The five books of Psalms contained in that one big book we call the Psalms. They use it to sing hymns to the Lord. So when we worship God, if a song is not biblical, then it's really not acceptable to the Lord. That's why Matt is very careful to select the hymns that he chooses to make sure they are sound. And there have been some hymns, too, that have been produced by organizations like Hillsong and Bethel and stuff, but they've gone south. You've got all these pastors who are living immorally not to mention the weird theology that is way off the charge of a group like Bethel and Hillsong comes together with them. Why would we want to sing any of their songs and use our CCLI license to, to help fund them? I don't want to, so we don't. So in chapter 1, he warned us about not falling into sin when we are down. But here he is warning us not to fall into sin when we are up, that we don't celebrate like the world celebrates, that we sing when we are cheerful. Is anyone cheerful? He is to sing praises. Belt it out. Sure, we need to be sensitive to weep with those who weep, to rejoice with those who rejoice. But it doesn't mean we can't sing and enjoy the Lord just because we're not in the midst of a thick trial. Please join us next Monday as we continue our series, Does Prayer and Oil Heal? If you enjoyed today's message, you can order a CD or DVD copy by calling Search the Scriptures at 877 787 7478. 
and requesting program James 014. Tomorrow, Pastor Carl's wife Audrey is in this time slot with her program for women, Mothering from the Heart. You can hear more of Audrey's messages on the Search the Scriptures app found on the iTunes and Google Play Store. Also, check out her podcast, Rare But Real, on Apple, Google, and Spotify podcast platforms. You can also listen to her podcast at searchthescriptures.org. We hope that you will join us next week as we continue to search the scriptures.